Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights, in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with Andrew Fisher, who's Head of Investment Strategy at the Australian Retirement Trust. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me, Walter. So this time we don't start with ultra long marathon running and things, but we'll delve straight into sort of the the more recent developments with the, the merger with QSuper, which um, um, officially I think took place in 2022, but it's of course a, a long process. And I think one of the interesting parts of it is that there were quite different investment approaches uh, between the old Sun Super and, and Q Super. Can you tell me a little bit about how you try to merge those two strategies into one comprehensive whole? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for the question. And thanks for having me here today. I'm really looking forward to this. When you think about it, we could focus on the differences. I think what, what we like to do is sort of focus on the strategic advantages. And so there was two sort of very distinct investment approaches, but two very successful investment approaches as well. Um, the Sun Super investment approach had been incredibly successful at delivering consistent long-term outperformance or sort of over the shorter term and then compounding that into longer-term outperformance. And that was that was the strategic decision and the, the way we we're in investing it um, over the sort of the past seven to 10 years, which had worked really well. Um, on the QSuper side, you had a very different approach um, and you had an investment strategy that was focused on delivering uh, long-term risk-adjusted returns um, and being very intentionally and specifically completely unconcerned with what the rest of the world was doing and what peers were doing and focusing very clearly on like that member outcome lens. And so if you looked at what both funds had achieved over that seven to 10 year period, uh, I think QSuper at the point of the merger was ranked number one in risk adjusted returns over 10 years and uh, SunSuper was probably ranked second or third over 10 years and still is um, on uh, pure sort of peer relative returns. And then also delivering those returns over consistent. So over three, five, seven, ten years, sort of really consistent outperformance. And so when we're bringing those two things together, it's how do you essentially, what, what are the best bits of both of those approaches and what can each and the other learn from um, each other? And so I think if you think about what QSuper was setting out to achieve, for example, there wasn't a really strong focus on was any sort of active management um, in the public market space. It's not to say that there was a huge strong view against it, it's just in the context of real sort of long-term risk-adjusted returns, alpha at the margins doesn't make a huge amount of difference. And so the research focus and the strategy focus had been on other areas. Um, conversely, some of those areas like commodities and trend-following strategies that have a relatively insignificant impact on 
Active returns um, at a fund level are really important for risk-adjusted returns. These are both accretive things and one of the, I think, really good benefits of bringing together these two funds and the benefit of our scale is we can essentially take these sort of um, really strong capabilities and complement both yeah. to deliver better outcomes um, across both yeah. sort of sets of members, sets of strategies. So I think it's, it has been said that QSuper in the past had more of a, a risk parity or I think they call it more risk-aware sort of um, investment strategy. Was that easy to sort of convert or, or merge those two IDs or was there already uh, a process in place where that had changed over the years? Look, I think the impost of the performance test and your future, your super, probably had more of an impact on QSuper's investment management style, perhaps than SunSuper's, if you think about the way they were set up. Um, and so I think some of that change had probably started to happen, um, even pre-merger. But in terms of, I guess, like that long-term sort of philosophical strategic decision, uh, it's not something that is necessarily challenged. And there's some really sort of neat elements to the way that um, the QSuper strategy is set up in terms of the efficiency of implementation and the way that we can actually translate some of that to I guess implementation across the whole art fund to make the whole fund better. So it hasn't, I don't think the merger in and of itself has necessarily challenged the way that strategy was set up. And um, I think risk balanced was the um, preferred sort of moniker to describe it. Um, we can continue to invest that way. We can continue to invest that way successfully. And there's learnings from that style of investing that we can actually use to improve. Um, all of our investments. Yeah. So you mentioned you bring the, the, the best of both funds together. Were, were there sort of surprises that you found or that you were impressed with when you looked into the QSuper capabilities? Well, so I sort of touched a bit on the, um, um, on the, like the efficiency of implementation. Um, and so I, I think a lot, of, a lot of effort had gone in there. I think another area that, that was really complementary, bringing the two funds together, but was, I guess, was looking at the QSuper side was a real strength, was around their capital markets capability. And so probably one of the biggest and most well-credentialed capital markets sort of execution desks of any super fund in the country. And for like a, at the margins, like a relatively small fund when they set that up, it was a really good investment, particularly if you think about the merging of our funds and some of the things that we were focused on in that space without building that capability out. It was a really complementary uh, merger from that perspective. Other areas, I think, look, the, the depth of research. Um, and this is another thing that I think is quite complementary with the funds coming together. Um, QSuper's strategy team was really strong, deep research, um, sort of economic research capability, whereas on the SunSuper side, that was probably, we had invested more in portfolio construction risk type capabilities in the strategy team, um, both really important, just different sort of priority sets. So again, bringing things together, yeah, we've probably got one of the strongest macro research capabilities of any fund um, as part of that merger, which is really exciting. Yeah, yeah, good. And I think there was also a, a bit of a difference in, in asset allocation in terms of uh, um, where historically the funds invested in. And I, I think particularly about um, I think SunSuper had a bit less in infrastructure. QSuper had a bit less in, in sort of the listed equity space. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that's right. So, um, yeah, very different approaches in the private market space. But again, I mean, I think they're really complementary. And so, I mean, we could go through almost every asset class, actually, really different approach, but quite a complementary one. And so when we're looking at like the public market space, for example, bringing together those two equity teams, you have a 
really well-performing manager of manager external management approach. And then you also have like a really, not high complexity, but like just a really well thought out capability in terms of um, internal structuring and building indexes to suit uh, what you want and an execution structure to um, deliver that. And again, like they're just two really complementary capabilities are two things that you'd really like to have. So on the one hand, we can look at the two funds coming together and say how different they are, but you can also look at them and say how incredibly complementary they are coming together as well. Um, that's one of our challenges, I guess, as a management team is to um, bring the best of that complementarity out rather, rather than having that sort of land with conflict. You want to have it land with like collective member best interests, which I think we've done really well. Uh, you mentioned infrastructure. Yeah, really, um, really stronger focus on infrastructure on the QSuper side. I think an element of that is potentially the heritage of the funds as much as it is strategy as well. Um, what relationships did you have as those funds were growing? Um, and if you look back to the, um, which is not to say SunSuper didn't have a strong relationship with QIC, but the QSuper QIC relationship is clearly a, a very symbiotic one. Um, and that would have seen a lot of flow in infrastructure um, into their fund in the sort of the earlier stages. And then that tends to um, compound a little. And then, yeah, even like you could take private equity, for example, really different approaches, but two of the most successful private equity um, asset class investment strategies you'll find anywhere in the country um, and bringing them together. It's just, yeah, it's a really complimentary mix. So you've taken on the role of head of investment strategy. And now it would be nice if you could just focus on one strategic goal. But I think it has been said that funds these days, they have to balance multiple sets of investment objectives there's there's peer risk there is an absolute cpi type of uh, objectives and then as you mentioned as well there's the performance test of the your super your future uh, legislation how how do you design a strategy that that deals with all of this um it's something we've been thinking about for some time uh something we've been thinking about even before your future your super um came into being is how do you how do you most i guess elegantly and simply resolve this down to a investment problem that is actually tractable as a strategy team and so the approach we've taken with this um, and we've been doing this for a while now is try and i guess try to reconcile all of that into some investable portfolio and also an investable portfolio that you think is better than all of your objectives and so then what we do is we set out to try and outperform that and so we have a we have a we have a range of I guess backward looking metrics and um, attribution that we do to prove that the benchmark portfolio is consistently achieving or outperforming those objectives. But then what we really focus in on is has the investment team done a good enough job of trying to beat that objective? So, in essence, what we do is we set ourselves a really hard benchmark and then and then try and beat it. And what we've found is it's been a really and I'm giving you sort of the Sun Super approach here to some extent, given that's my heritage. Um, that's been really successful in delivering on those sort of multiple objectives. And our benchmark has been a really good one. Um, generally, it's been a more challenging one than your future, your super that we've held ourselves to. Um, and then by beating that, we've tended to deliver some pretty consistent, strong outperformance. The advantage of that approach and one of the reasons why we went down this path was there can be a bit of a tendency to get I guess like almost like paralysis, like de like decision paralysis when you're focusing on all these different objectives because one of them will talk you out of any decision. <laughs> uh, but if you set yourself a line and says, I've got to beat this, then you have a really sort of clear focus and you don't end up uh, talking yourself out of what is otherwise a good investment decision. So is it the composite benchmark that you're... 
Yes. So it's it's not dissimilar to what you'd see for your future your super. Um, we just have a little bit more. Um, so for example, in private equity, we would use an actual private equity benchmark when we think about uh, what it is we're trying to outperform there. That way we can try and ensure in every asset class we're delivering good performance, but we can also... Um, um, also, in like it needs to be investable from a strategy team sort of point of view as well, um, and so that's that, that's that's the approach we've had for some time now. Um, it's worked quite well, and the the beauty of that is you can always take one of those objectives away, and it will change the problem set somewhat. And so, if you take something like a the Q super balanced option where we don't have a peer objective, we just resolve to have a somewhat different starting benchmark portfolio, which is still um, the best portfolio to beat the two objectives that we have. Yeah. Have there ever been discussions about like implementing a uh, reference portfolio type of model like akin to what New Zealand Super does? And uh, we have um, and we have thought about that. I think, again, if we had that sort of model, it would sort of when we thought about that and used it, it was sort of like it was a step on the pathway to get to the, the multi-asset benchmark that we're benchmarked against. And so that would be one of the that would be one of the many multiple objectives that we would see feed into that. And we want to make sure, and this is like the, from a trustee point of view or someone or someone at that level, the first question they should be asking is, do I even need an investment team? Yeah. And that's what that question sort of seeks to answer because you don't need any of us to invest in that reference portfolio. And so we do still, from time to time, we'll report on that and make sure that we are actually outperforming it. One of the benefits of having a relatively broad investment um, choice menu is we have the equivalent of a reference portfolio available to members to choose. And so that um, that comparison is fairly front and center regularly um, when something like a balanced index or a growth index option is outperforming. Yeah, yeah. So when we look at a little bit deeper into the portfolio, um, has the merger completely finalized? Um, I understand there were initially some duplication of strategies that you guys were looking into. Can you tell me a little bit about where that is at? Yeah, uh, look, I think um, I think the merger in many ways almost never finalizes, right? Because we're always like we're we're always growing, um, and relative to some other sort of mergers that I can think about that we've been through, this is quite a different different thing. And so I think certainly not finalized, and certainly um, certainly lots of things to do um, and lots of growing to do, I guess, as art and as an organization. But in terms of like sort of tangible progress, um, to your point, we've merged custodians, um, which was uh, one of the, I guess, one of the big benefits that we were looking to deliver through the merger from an investment point of view, but also a really important precondition to a lot of things that come subsequently. Uh, and for anyone listening who's been through a custody merger, people realize these are as like sorry, custody transition, you'll know that this is something that is not easy to do. And so we're coming up now on two years since the actual merger. And if you think about how long it takes even just to do a custodian assessment, choose the preferred custodian and do all that transition, you can imagine that um, that hasn't necessarily been in place for a particularly long time already. Um, and then there's an awful lot of sort of bringing together of portfolios to happen post that. Uh, so we're in the middle of the sort of integration of investment portfolio process at the moment. Um, there's a product um, integration that uh, we are sort of working on at the moment as well. And then from an administration point of view, there's an awful lot of work to do in terms of bringing together two very large administration platforms for members. Um, and so, yes, we're, I certainly wouldn't describe us as finished from a merging point of view. Um, 
I think complementing us to an extent, I think we've moved incredibly quickly in terms of what's been achieved in the short period of time that we've had. And I think there's there's a really sort of strong strategic imperative and desire to do that. We are one of the largest sort of asset owners in the country, but also in the world now. And so we need to, we kind of, we kind of need to walk and chew gum at the same time as this merge is happening. And so we recognize internally that there's a really strong impetus to sort of keep this moving um, and keep demonstrating progress. And so it's really, yeah, it's been pleasing to see how much we've achieved in such a short space of time. Yeah, for sure. So it's, it's, that was quite a large merger. Um, but I think at the moment, there's a whole bunch of smaller mergers in, in process and uh, have taken place as well. I think including uh, Australia Post Superannuation Scheme, um, the Commonwealth Bank Group Super, Alcoa Super, and I think there's a deal in the works still with AV Super. Um, are there sort of any learnings from the QSuper merger that you can take to these ones? Does it get any easier? Look, I think the the QSuper merger is probably um, uniquely different to all of those that are listed there because um, you could sort of go back in time and there's a pretty strong heritage of corporate superannuation on the Sun Super side um, anyway. And we had some mergers like um, Kinetic, for example, in the past, Ozsafe. And so there's, there, we've, had, we've had quite a number of mergers um, of sort of the similar scale to the ones you've described there. Uh, I think QSuper is a completely different different beast yeah it, it is it is a really different thing to sort of go through um and even when you sort of see the merger activity in the market there are there are mergers like that we have two funds of sort of equivalent scale coming together um in a really genuine true sort of merge type scenario um like we've merged everything um and it's it's very different even back to the earlier point about when's the merger finished to some extent it's finished the day it happens and to another extent it's never really finished um, because we're consistently forming a new organization so you mentioned a little bit about the, the fund has grown i think it's now 260 billion making it also a player on the global scale but we're probably going to see the fund grow a lot more over the coming years how is that sort of influencing your ideas about investment strategy uh, becoming a global player and but also probably becoming you know over the next couple of decades too large for the local market to be as heavily represented as it is now what are your ideas about how to adjust the investment strategy to that growth mm. I think uh, so. If you if you take both Q Super and um, Sun Super prior to the merger, um, ballpark a hundred billion ish size funds in Aussie dollars, um, and in both cases on a pathway to be doubling. We always sort of say every seven years, but the reality is it's close to every five years. Um, we consistently get surprised by growth um, <laughs> to the upside, and so I think in both those cases, what the merger essentially did is bring forward a five-year plan into a day in terms of that growth. But it wasn't um, it wasn't necessarily um, growth that wasn't expected. It was just growth that came much, 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 much faster than we would have otherwise anticipated. And so I think in, in both cases, this is part of sort of the merger, the maturity of coming together as a fund, um, as a merged entity. There's areas where um, we had invested for that growth and planned for it a little in advance where we're where we're kind of up to speed a little, but there's probably areas in our capability where we've outgrown our capability. And so we, we sort of have to relatively quickly try and catch up and make sure we have 
like all the capability we need to run a 200 to 300 billion dollar fund and i think we've done a really good job of that over the last 12 months uh, but then we're thinking about 500 billion one trillion dollar funds where, where do we need to be and so i think what we've what we've probably in both cases always tried to do i think is think about really sort of simplifying down what are the as you get bigger and bigger and bigger and we know we're going to get bigger and bigger and bigger what are the what are the things you can do consistently sustainably to generate relative outperformance um, and things that you're not going to outgrow and so when we're thinking about that there's areas like private markets our approach will inherently evolve as our scale changes but we're never going to outgrow the private markets and our ability to deliver an illiquidity risk premium over time. Um, and so we continue to invest in that and we continue to focus energy and effort there. Um, one of the areas where we think we can sort of consistently add value is in the dynamic asset allocation space. And then very specifically in that space, thinking about it from a valuation approach. And so what that means is valuation essentially is you're buying when everyone else is selling and you're selling when everyone else is um, when everyone else is buying. And so like being able to provide essentially liquidity to the market in the public market space is something we don't think we're ever going to necessarily outgrow. Again, we're going to have to evolve how we think about that, what our market footprint looks like. You don't want to um, you don't want to be doing so much in that space that you actually dominate the market and can't extract the benefit that you were looking for otherwise. Um, and then the last area where I think no matter how large we get, we can always add value is thinking about just being more and more efficient about the implementation side of what we do. And so the capital markets team, our exposure management team, investing in that space because as you get bigger, um, a basis point means a lot more. And so every single basis point um, and every little bit of leakage and every bit of leakage saved and every bit of um, additional juice you can extract from every little part of your balance sheet and your portfolio um, is worth a lot, lot more in terms of dollars. And so, again, that's somewhere where we think we will continue to invest and add value. Yeah. So that private market space is quite interesting because I think, obviously, it is some, it's an area where you can really scale up. But I also remember you did a presentation last year uh, around April for financial planners mainly. But you mentioned there that one of the key learnings from the 2021-22 period is how important private assets were in sort of building their robustness in portfolios, um, especially when the equity bond correlation turned positive. From from that period, has that led to any real changes in the asset allocation? And um, in terms of those private markets, um, we discussed a little bit earlier that uh, infrastructure was something that hadn't been traditionally a big part of SunSuper. Is, is that now more of a, a key focus? Look, I think it's it's something that we, we're inevitably not going to move particularly quickly. And so it's a natural evolution. I think from, I think our, our learnings and takeaways from that period were sort of what worked and what didn't in terms of delivering that inflation protection. And if I was going to sort of greatly summarize it, it was that the traditional and more defensive parts of infrastructure were probably some of the best performing parts um, in terms of that inflation path pass through, but then quite the opposite on the property side. And so we saw them as real assets and we we're expecting that inflation pass through, but the traditional sectors of property um, and real estate struggled whilst the, the sort of more alternative sectors were actually where we got the best outcomes there. 
And so I think that that does inform our strategy. Um, and I think we're already on a pathway down that way anyway, but I think we'll continue down that pathway as we think about building a diversified portfolio. I think the other um, takeaway probably subsequent to that in terms of our portfolio construction is that we have found that um, I guess the outperformance or the active um, portfolio that we run relative to um, that benchmark I was describing earlier has had a tendency to be relatively inflation sensitive. Um, and so whilst we look at the real assets in aggregate and think about how they're performing, um, they've sort of, we've, we've managed to deliver outperformance as well versus uh, those portfolios. And so that's an advantage, but then that's also a risk because inflation can also decrease as well as increase. And so we've been thinking as much about inflation protection going forward, but also whether or not we have enough deflationary protection in the portfolio as well. Um, I think we think about getting deflation protection much more in the public than private markets because it's an awful lot easier to buy bonds. Um, so it, it's a it's a pleasing characteristic to have in the portfolio um, in terms of that inflation protection because it's quite hard to get that with positive expected return. And so what we've been thinking about is um, positioning of the portfolio and risk positioning in the portfolio and I mean to grossly summarise things is increasing the level of duration in the portfolio to try and balance and offset that a little bit. So you mentioned that uh, the troubles in the real estate sector, and I think particularly office had a difficult time with the, with the pandemic um, and a lot of workplaces closing. How do you look at that? Is that just uh, sort of a, a, an outlier or is there sort of a cautionary tale that perhaps private markets will also have their moments of you know, crisis? Uh, I, th I think there is... Um I think we are consistently given some of these cautionary tales um, and there's a tendency for it to be the, I guess the assets and the asset classes that you just can't not invest in um, for whatever reason. And it wasn't necessarily just offers, so it's probably the hardest hit, but I think retail's been pretty heavily disrupted as well. And so I think office is perhaps like a, um, a relatively unique um, catalyst that's applied there. But if you look at the retail space, I think the the writing was on the wall there for some time um, in terms of the impact of online, and and if you think back, like that that's probably a better lesson learned, I would say, is like how quickly did you sort of read that, read the tea leaves on that, and understand that you know what off retail is not going to be the best place for the next 20 years to invest your money, and can you afford to give up of one year or two year of cap rate compression? Um, and supposed resilience to economic downturn uh, to move out of that into more of the industrial, which is the disrupting sector. And so I, I think that's probably a better example. I think office has been really, really badly hit. Um, I think there's probably um, perhaps the jury's still out on just how structural that change is um, or whether or not we might see some sort of reversion there, um, whether it's potentially oversold or not, I think. Yeah. I, I don't know. Um, I don't have a strong view one way or the other, but uh, I certainly think it's um, really been the um, really taken some pain. Yes, yeah, for sure. So, of course, it's it's every fund um, invests for the long term. Um, it's in, important to sort of have that very long term view on on making these type of uh, decisions. But at the same time, if you sort of look at the last four or five years. 
it seems to have been you know a period especially here in australia as well with the with the bushfires that started off this period period of like multiple crises and i was reading some research recently that, that was talking about there's so many complex movements at the moment that they were talking about a perma crisis some of these things will take decades to resolve itself and then it was referring to you know geopolitical events what we see in gaza what we saw in the ukraine but also you know the pandemic and the impact from that um when you look at that and you look at sort of the idea of long-term investing do you feel that something has changed or is this um will we look back on this period i don't know 20 years later and go like yes it was unusual but it hasn't really changed the approach to investing um I, I you can almost say that arguably the period of um relative benign conflict that we had for sort of post cold war um into more recently was the outlier in terms of human history um and so i don't know perhaps one day we look back and think that was an incredibly um benign period where the world cooperated much more than um it might otherwise have done and so that whole deglobalization trend and mass productivity gains was um, was perhaps the outlier. I think what's what's interesting is even if you just take the two examples you mentioned there, like Russia, Ukraine and Gaza, um, and you can come up with a lot of reasons why one is much more impactful than the other perhaps um, on the global economy, but realistically you see the market response to the first and then you see the market's learned response and the way it responds to the second. I think the market can take volatility in its stride what it doesn't deal well with is surprise and not knowing what might happen uh, but once the market has dealt with a type of crisis the next time that same sort of type of crisis comes you see with covid like a complete capitulation no one knows what's going to happen um, if covid came again would markets react the same way i don't think they would and so um i think i think there was like i don't know as long as i've been going on there's always something so yeah. always something that comes up um i think the, the the one thing that's probably surprised a lot of people which we don't talk about quite so much is just how resilient equities have been through this whole inflationary crisis and impulse that we've sort of lived through uh, which i don't think anybody would have really predicted up front and there's perhaps a this is where you got to be sort of careful to i think at least you, you should be careful to sort of test your biases in your priors um, and not necessarily hold them too strictly because if if you hold on to that, you're going to say equities are massively overvalued and a, a sort of correction, a mass big correction is coming to equity markets, which may be true. Um, it doesn't feel that way though. Uh, and so perhaps it's just equities passed through inflation really well this time um, and have been quite resilient and earnings have been relatively resilient and in lots of places where earnings have managed to be resilient multiples have been bid up because those resilient earnings are worth more and so i think there's there's, there's good arguments for why equities have done reasonably well through this period and that's surprised a lot of people um, but it doesn't mean that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a huge correction coming and so we're certainly not positioned for that we're humble enough to say, yep, didn't see that coming. But um, it's it's quite pleasing for our portfolios that it did because it's held um, it's held returns up quite well for members. And if you look at if you look at this whole period that we've lived through, um, had you asked anybody ten years ago when rates were zero, what's the best thing you could hope for? Um, it would have been a really sharp 
increase in interest rates that doesn't cause too much damage. Um, and so if you could have you couldn't you couldn't have manufactured a better outcome for long-term expected returns if we do generate this soft landing and um, we go forward from here because this is really good for long-term returns on um, the forward outlook. So you think the the Fed has done a good job so far? I think they've done a really good job so far. I think there's still there's still genuine risk. Um, it's like the job is not done, but I think central banks have done a really good job. Yeah. Let's finish up with uh, an issue that um, also always comes back, uh, climate change and decarbonisation. Um, also a trend that will go on for many, many, many decades. But I think before the merger, I know Sunsuper had already taken some measures to decarbonize the portfolio. They put some benchmarks in place with, uh, I think, a lower carbon footprint. What is sort of the uh, the position at the moment? Um, is, is there still more to go? Um, where are you taking this in, in terms of the investment strategy? Uh, so yeah, you pl- possibly have seen our um, net zero roadmap, which is uh, which we've published on the website with some um, fairly sort of specific targets over time. So yes, there's certainly much more to go. Obviously, like anybody else, um, the best possible outcome is a net zero world by 2050, which um, would be uh, inherently then something that we can, um, if if the world is on the path that where we need to be on and we think that the world needs to be on uh, then it should really be a as much as anything I guess like a engagement story in terms of trying to navigate and push I guess the index along the path that we would like it to go I think the reality will be a little different to that and so to your point we have um, uh, introduced low carbon indexes in our equity portfolios Um, we did a, I guess like a um, a similar approach. So we've got active and passive. So in the act in the passive space, we introduced like an optimized index designed to have essentially minimal tracking error but lower carbon. The logic behind that being that what we're looking to do really is mitigate the risk. So we do think there is risk there because the world is on a net zero pathway, and so we don't think that risk is adequately rewarded. And so we try and mitigate that risk uh, without taking too much investment risk. Um, and that's been quite successful for us over the past few years, even in what was otherwise a relatively challenging environment for strategies like that. Uh, and then in the active space, uh, the way we went about it was, we, and we, we tested a few different approaches. Uh, and I think the, the best approach we found was to essentially give each of the active managers the same reduction target we had and style adjust that as well. So style-based adjustment um, and that again has worked quite successfully, uh, I think. And now, in terms of where we go from here, I think the next steps are to think about ensuring that that equity portfolio is on a, on the transition pathway we want, but also starting to move into some of the other areas of the portfolio, in particular private markets, and thinking about how do we get that part of the portfolio on the pathway that we need as well. Yeah. So apart from sort of these um, overall uh, frameworks that you put in place. Has it changed your idea in how you look at risk as well? We've heard a lot about stranded asset risk, but um, again, it seems that some of these developments have accelerated a little bit and markets seem to always price these things in quicker than it actually takes place. How, How has it changed your idea of risk? Look, I think even just observing markets, not necessarily even recently, but even over the last 10 years, uh, I think... uh, like on a personal level, I've probably been surprised at the pace of change in investment markets. Um, I certainly haven't been surprised at the pace of change in 
the government sector. Um, but I think I have, I, but I've certainly been surprised at the pace of change that's been delivered in investment markets. I wouldn't say despite that, but just like, um, and that is a combination of pressure from members, um, and then also an assessment and a realization that the risks are actually going to translate through to prices, and they have been translating very, very quickly. And so, we, in reality, we don't have a choice but to start assessing and thinking about these risks. Uh, otherwise, it's going to impact member returns. And so, yeah, it's, we've been very conscious. Um, very conscious, thoughtful approach um, in terms of recognizing that we need to consider this in our investment approach, but also making sure we're considering it in a really thoughtful way. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Well, Andrew, it was great to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much for your time. Um, yeah, no, thanks for being here again. No worries. Thank you very much for having me. And um, hopefully it's not too long before you invite me back again. <laughs> I'm sure it will be shortly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.